Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Jodcast. Happy birthday to you. The Jodcast. Happy birthday to us. With Megan Argo, Adam Overson, George Bendo, Therese Canvar, Hannah Stacey, and Charlie Walker. The Jodcast. January 2016, birthday edition. Hello everyone and welcome to a very special episode of the Jogcast. I'm Charlie and I'm here with Megan, Adam and George. Hello. Hello. And it's a special day because the Jogcast is 10 years old. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) And only... Only one of us here has been around since the very beginning. Yeah, I feel really old right now. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Are you the last one in the department who's still around? Yeah, I did leave and come back, though. Mm. Um, and I haven't been doing it for the whole 10 years, as I'm sure the listeners will have noticed. Have you been so. listening to it regularly for 10 years? I should say yes, but I will be lying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind. think you're one of the people who's uh, contributed the uh, longest continuously. Uh, who's by been... virtue of having never left, yeah. I've been going since <laughs> 2009, helping out on the Jogcast, but I don't know. Probably me or Megan have yeah, done most, but you, you had a break, right? I did. Well, I did the news for seven years almost continuously. There were only a f- handful of episodes, first, first of the month episodes, where I didn't do the news. But then, yeah, I stopped for a bit. Um, Moved on. We've had regular <laughs> newscasters ever since. Yes. And I think Matthias is going to be taking over as one of them. What about you, George? How long have you been going for? Uh, since about 2012, though I'm not actually certain. It's uh, uh, I uh, started working at uh, Georgia Bank Center for Astrophysics five years ago, actually, to this uh, day that we're recording. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, soon after moving up here, and uh, also I was moving up here from London, where at Imperial College, the People there wanted us all focused on research and didn't really want us doing other things like outreach and stuff. So I didn't start right away on the Jodcast. It's like I sort of gradually started working on it. So I don't recall exactly when I started working on it, but it was 2011 or 2012. Well, one thing's certain, I'm definitely the freshest here, so I'm not really sure why I'm leading. <laughs> sure. Had, had yeah. you listened to it before you started your no. studies? Here? No, no you I was always pretty bad at um, listening to things and watching things about astronomy on TV, to be honest. So I don't know how I've ended up doing this. But, um, <laughs> You're doing yeah. a very good job. <laughs> Cheers. So the, the Jogcast is 10 and almost old enough to learn about what we're talking about, I guess. <laughs> um, and I'll do my best. So in the show this time, we interview Professor John Seradakis about the Antikythera mechanism, and Joe Zuntz answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Therese Cantwell interviews Dr. Jean-Francois Robitaille about measuring magnetic fields in the galactic plane in this month's Jodbite. So my name is Therese Cantwell, and I'm here today with Jean-Francois Robitaille. Uh, from, he's a postdoc at University of Manchester, and uh, he did his PhD in Université Laval. Um, so what were you doing your PhD on then? So uh, the title of my PhD was the uh, multiscale analysis of the dust emission in the galactic plane. Um, so yeah, I was working with uh, mathematical tools to uh, separate different kind of fluctuations in the uh, dust emission in the galactic plane. So and there's I, just there's just a lot yeah. of dust floating about in the galaxy. Yeah, there's a lot of dust, and dust is a really good tracer to the um, like the entire amount of matter along the line of sight. 
because we think that is homogeneously uh, mixed with the uh, the molecular gas and the atomic gas as well. So it's a good tracer to like the entire amount of matter in so the a, interstellar medium. So it's a good way of effectively seeing what the galaxy really looks like, where everything is, yeah, the distribution exactly. of matter in yeah, the galaxy. Yeah, exactly. So during my PhD, I used the um, map of the um, Special Telescope Herschel. And are you working on the same stuff then here in Manchester? or? It's uh, it's a bit different. So um, for in my position here, I'm still working with similar mathematical tools that we can, well, we could dis- discuss a bit more later. Now, uh, they are applied on the magnetic field of the uh, galactic plane. So I try to um, to understand the structures in the magnetic field. So is there a magnetic field distributed throughout the whole of the galaxy? Or is it, or do you only get magnetic field in small areas of the galaxy? So there's, yeah, there's magne- magnetic fields uh, almost everywhere in the galaxy. So usually people tend to, um, to separate it in two different two different ways. So you, you have the uh, regular magnetic field and the random mag- magnetic field. So the regular one is at the large scales of the galaxies. So the uh, scale of the galactic arm, for example. So the spiral arms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So at that scales, we see that the magnetic fields follow the, um, the galactic arms. At smaller uh, spatial scales, we see that the magnetic field is more random and it's probably caused by uh, turbulence and energy that is ejected by supernova and um, also massive stars, winds, stellar winds. So how do we how do we actually see magnetic fields in the galaxy? Are we able to just point a telescope at at the galaxy and see these? Or yeah, it would be really useful, but no, <laughs> we cannot do that. So that's yeah, the main problem with the magnetic fields that we cannot observe it directly. So uh, we have to use tracers to do that. There's no tracer. There's no perfect tracers, but we have many uh, many ways to uh, to see it. What are some examples of these tracers? We have, for example, if we want to look at the like larger scales, which is the um, what is the larger fluctuations in the uh, galactic plane, we look at what we call the extragalactic sources. So we look at so like these sources outside of our own galaxy, like other galaxies, or yeah, exactly. Like so uh, it's usually uh, emitted by um, AGN, so active galactic nucleus. Ah, so supermassive black holes at the yeah, center. Yeah, exactly. So they, they emit polarized light. Polarization, maybe the, the best um, comparison we can do is uh, with when when you look at um, a 3D movie in IMAX, usually they use like uh, glasses with two different filters. So mm-hmm. in the back in the old days, it was like the blue and the right, uh, the, the red filter. But now they are they use polarized uh, filter on mm. the glasses. So this is why when you look at someone <clears throat> else wearing the the glasses, you can't one of the eyes is darkened out. Yeah, exactly. Because so, the light can't get through both. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the polarization of light measure or is the quantification of the orientation of the um, electric wave in the uh, electromagnetic so emission. Whether, so whether yeah. the the emission is going up and down or left and right or. Yeah, exactly. Clockwise or anti-clockwise. So um, there's a lot of polarized emission in the uh, in space or in the universe. So the extragalactic sources by the AGN are uh, polarized. So when we look at the extragalactic sources, which emit polarized, mm-hmm. um, emission. yeah, polarized emission, the light experience what we call the Faraday rotation. So the Faraday rotation is the rotation of the angle of the polarization 
vector or the angle of the oscillations of light. That uh, rotation is dependent of the um, magnetic field strength in the galaxy. Also, it's dependent of the density of thermal electron. So a lot of the part of the matter in the uh, interstellar medium is uh, a plasma, which is just matter that is ionized by the um, the fields of radiation in interstellar medium. It's also dependent of the square of the wavelength of the, uh, the emission. Okay. So we can we can infer magnetic fields are there because we can see we the can amount see them of rotation. rotating yeah. emission from extragalactic sources. Exactly. But this isn't the technique you use. To... No, that's not the technique that I use. So one main problem with that technique is that uh, we don't have enough sources to sample all the oscillations or all the uh, the differences in the magnetic field. Mm -hmm. in the galactic plane. One really good thing about this technique is that we can measure the entire effect because we we use extra-galactic sources, mm -hmm. so we can see uh, the effect of the entire galaxy because the light is coming from out outside, of the galaxy. Yeah. yeah, outside of the galaxy. Since we don't have an, enough sources, we cannot sample like the entire fluctuations of the galactic mm -hmm. plane. Th th there's other way to do that. We can also use uh, pulsars, which are in our galaxies. Mm -hmm. In that way, we can um, infer some distances to the magnetic field fluctuation in our galaxy. Another way is to um, use the dust polarization as well. So we think that dust grains as um, an elongated shape, that shape is aligned with the magnetic field lines. So the emission, the infrared emission of the um, dust is also polarized because of that alignment mm -hmm. with the um, magnetic field. So we can do that, but it's it's still not perfect because we, we trace the magnetic field where this matter. So if we really want to trace the magnetic field itself, the best way is probably with the diffuse polarized galactic emission. And so what's diffuse polarized galactic <laughs> emission then? <laughs> okay, so the galaxy itself uh, emitting the um, polarized emit polarized emission. It's what we call the synchrotron emission. Mm -hmm. So it's when the free electrons that I mentioned before, the uh, thermal electrons that yep. come from the ionization of the matter in the uh, interstellar medium. So those free electrons are captured or accelerated by the magnetic field lines, and then those electrons emit polarized emission. Mm -hmm. That emission is visible in the uh, radio, so that's why we are using radio telescopes. <laughs> so which radio telescopes are you using then for your work? So for my work, I, I don't observe personally for that, but I'm using surveys that uh, look at the entire galaxy. The first survey that I used was the uh, Canadian Galactic Plane Survey, which is um, a survey of the, like I said, the entire galactic plane. It was at 1.4 gigahertz. Now I'm using another one, uh, which comes from uh, Australia, the uh, S-Pass survey for the S-band polarization all-sky survey. So for this one, it's, uh, it's really interesting because we not only have the galactic plane, but we have the entire sky. So we can compare the emission at higher galactic latitude mm -hmm. and also the more random field, magnetic field in the uh, galactic plane itself. So what results have you seen then with your, your new mathematical techniques? Okay, so with my technique, I focus mainly on the random part of the magnetic field. That random part is uh, mainly affected by the turbulence. Turbulence has the ability to transfer the energy from larger scales to smaller scales. Uh, we think that the main uh, energy sources, the large scales, 
drivers for the turbulence. Yeah, exactly. Is probably the uh, supernova in the um, in the galaxy. So that would be would that be large scale turbulence then? Yeah, but this large scale energy then uh, cascade from mm-hmm. larger scales to smaller scales. So that's why we see fluctuations and randomness in the uh, interstellar medium. But it's not comp- completely random. And um, with my technique, I try to separate. Uh, structures that are random or maybe turbulent from structures that are not turbulent Mm -hmm. and try to understand the link between uh, many physical processes like uh, massive stellar winds to determine what is that scale of ejection Mm -hmm. in the in the galaxy and for that yeah i'm using mathematical tools which are called wavelets so the, the main idea with wavelets are is that um, the main goal is to separate the different scale and the, the best comparison that we can do is with um, a piece of music for example if we want to look at the frequency content of a piece of music we'll do the Fourier transform of it mm-hmm. and then we'll see the piece of music not as a function of time but as a function of frequencies and then we can tell how there's that frequency or this frequency in the uh, in the piece of music uh, the different the difference with the wavelets is that we can not only say that there's uh, that frequency or that frequency, but we can also tell where the frequency was during the, the piece of music. Mm-hmm. Those frequencies, uh, th- there's also partial frequencies in images, so we can decompose an image in different um, scales and different special frequencies. And for that, yeah, I'm using wavelets. And from that decomposition, we can tell many things. So we can quantify the turbulent medium uh, by saying if it's, um, for example, subsonic, supersonic, and uh, stuff like that. We can also tell the um, the scale of the injection of the energy. Unfortunately, it's really hard to tell the scale at which complete dissipation of the energy because for the moment, we don't have the, uh, the resolution to do that. So effectively, yeah. so when you look at an image initially, all these different spatial scales are superimposed and it's yeah. impossible just looking at the image to disentangle these. It's really hard to do. <laughs> so so, th- so the usefulness of your method is that you can actually apply this and it just, it opens that up for you. You can then see the different, yeah, the the, different scales. Yeah, exactly. And it's something that we can do only recently because before those surveys that I was mentioning, we didn't have enough, enough larger scales if you want. So we just looked at some places in our galaxy, mm-hmm. so like a star formation region or what is the magnetic field in a supernova region mm-hmm. and things like that. But now with the surveys, we have access to the uh, fluctuation in the uh, entire galactic plane or for the entire mm-hmm. galaxy. And then we have access to the larger scales. So now we can see and try to measure with this kind of tools, the uh, wavelet transform or Fourier transform, try to see what is the connection between the different scales. Mm-hmm in the um, in the turbulent medium. And so you mentioned that at the moment telescopes aren't good enough to be able to see down to that the, the smallest scales. Yeah. Is there hope in the future that these might be accessible? Yeah. <laughs> there's, uh, there, there's hope. So um, there's a lot of development for the next generation of radio telescope or the SKA. So I, I try to look at some numbers that are impressive, <laughs> some stuff that we're... So the, S- be... the SKA is the telescope being built in South Africa and Australia. Yeah, is that right? exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It will have a lot more telescope and more Telescope are the more yeah not not just the sensitivity but the the number of antenna and the um, baselines the distances yeah, between exactly. the antenna 
the baselines, longest ba baselines, we can have access to uh, smaller features if mm -hmm. you want in the images and reach uh, a better resolution with our observation. So with that, yeah, maybe at that point we'll be able to to look at the point where we have a dissipation of the energy in the uh, and it's something that is really important to understand. For example, the formation of molecular clouds, mm -hmm. which are the birthplace of new stars. Of stars, yeah, yeah exactly. So um, that will be very interesting. Also, SK will be more sensitive, like you like you said. When I mention, for example, the extragalactic sources, so at the moment I said that we don't have enough sampling to look at the um, the smallest fluctuation, so we don't. We have only access to the uh, large scales mm -hmm. fluctuation or the large scale image of the magnetic field in the galaxy with that technique. So this is the the Faraday rotation technique using yeah, the extragalactic exactly. sources. Extragalactic sources. Yeah. So so now at the moment we have um, access to catalog of extragalactic sources of approximately uh, forty thousand sources. But with the sensitivity of the SKA, we'll have like between 7 and 14 extragalactic sources. A oh, million extragalactic sources. Yeah. yeah. That's a significant jump up. Yeah, exactly. So uh, with that, we will have a better sampling of the uh, magnetic field mm -hmm. of the entire galaxy. There's some limitations with the, when we look at the diffuse polarized galactic emission, what mm -hmm. I'm doing. There's some advantage to use, um, the extragalactic sources. So we'll be able to do an awful lot more so once the SKA comes online in. When is the SKA due to to begin operation? So I think the the construction should begin around uh, 2018. Okay, so still a couple of years away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, still, we, there, there's a lot of work to do. Uh, in the meantime. <laughs> in the meantime, yeah. And it's, um, it's also the role of our uh, group here in uh, in Manchester with um, an archive. So to imagine some new science that we'll be able to, to do with the SK and also, yeah, developing the, the pipeline of reductions of data and things like that. Sounds exciting. Yeah. Well, thank it you is. very much for coming to talk to us today. Thanks a lot to you. Thanks for that, Therese. Now, if you're interested in hearing about a 2,000-year-old astronomical computer, such a thing does exist, Charlie interviewed Professor John Seradakis about the Antikythera mechanism. Today I'm joined by Professor John Seradakis, who's the director of the Laboratory of Astronomy at Aristotle University. Welcome to the oh, Jogcast. Oh, oh, thank you so much. I enjoyed my lecture today and I'm enjoying talking to you. And um, <laughs> you actually, you did your PhD in Manchester a while oh, yes. back, didn't you? Lovely times, Which back in 71 to 75. And that was back when the University of Manchester was still the Victoria University of Manchester. Indeed, yes. Humus was different. And you lived, I guess you lived at Jodrell Bank. Well, there were no premises at Jodrell Bank. I lived in Alderley Edge with uh, Richard Davis and other friends that were here today. Yeah, with lots of academics who we've interviewed here in the past. Yes. And Ian Morrison, who does our Sky at Night. Yes. So you were here giving a talk on the Antikythera mechanism, <laughs> which is, well... I guess the best way to describe it, you're one of the leading experts in the subject. Could you tell us a little bit about what the Antikythera mechanism actually is? Well, it was an astronomical computer. It had input, output, and it had a way of doing calculations through gears. Uh, it was calculating the position of the sun and the moon. It was calculating and forecasting eclipses of the sun and the moon. And it was uh, also it had a, a well-made user's manual because it was a complicated device. 
listening to your talk, some of the stuff is incredible about how they've actually manufactured this thing. Could you give us a little bit of history on when it was discovered? Uh, it was discovered by chance in 1901 by some fishermen, some probably it was sponge divers. And once uh, the discovery was made, a few months later, the whole crew of archaeologists uh, and other personnel from uh, the Greek Navy, they collaborated and they brought up several artifacts, statues, jewelry, uh, glassware, and the antikythera mechanism. A couple of months is quite a quick turnaround for discovering something to actually bring it up, isn't it? Oh, yes, yes. This is something that couldn't happen today, I think with all the precautions and yeah. uh, the bureaucracy that we have, especially in my country. Yeah, so what drew you to first look at this mechanism? Because your uh, your research is in neutron stars and flare stars and, wow, pretty much everything, the centre of the galaxy, um, but you're also really interested in archaeoastronomy. So what, what drew you to this particular area? I haven't said this before, but my mother was an archaeologist. She worked with Sir Arthur Evans in Crete, and she somehow she gave me the microbe of archaeology through the blood that she transferred to me. So when Mike Edmonds gave me a ring and said, well, shall we try to uh, make another investigation of the Antikythera mechanism? I was very happy, except I did not want to do the bureaucracy. Mm. I called a colleague of mine, and he said, yes, I will do the bureaucracy for you, but you do the astronomy. Uh, fair enough, he would do it, but eventually his health deteriorated and I had to do everything. And I was not very good at bureaucracy, so it took us two years before he got the permission to uh, to actually investigate it. What sort of bureaucracy does happen? How how do you get to the point where you can actually pick up this thing, this fragment, which is so old and so precious? Well, I think the archaeologists are the guardians of um, our inheritance, the guardians of uh, history. So they're very, very, very careful what they do and what uh, permissions they give. At the beginning, they did not understand what we were trying to do. They did not know what X-rays really mean. They did not know anything about gears. They did not know that by by studying the number of teeth of uh, cooperating gears, we can understand what they are doing. Mm. So it took us a very long time uh, until we persuaded them that it's going to bring new results. And uh, it has brought new results. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Could you quickly give a description of what the Antikythera mechanism is today? What you actually see when you when you have the pieces out in front of you? Well, they're, they're fragments, they're calcified fragments of uh, gears, plates, and uh, pointers. And luckily, having the, the very high-resolution tomographer that we used, we can go through it, we have a resolution of 20 microns, and uh, read letters, see the gears, how they cooperate, where the axes are, where the shafts are, and this is, uh, what, it, this is what we do. So layer by layer, you can strip down yes. micrometer by micrometer and just unravel yes. what's going on in a really non-invasive way. Which is yes, really yes, exactly. exactly. Non-invasive way, well, well said. Mm. The problem was, of course, that the, the fragments were not flat. When we were reading a text, it was not that we read a text on a, on a two-dimensional flat space. Is that because it was made in not a flat way? Or was it because it's been battered and beaten by the waves? It was busted and bittered and uh, calcified and broken. And uh, maybe there were earthquakes there that stones came down and destroyed it a little bit here and there. We found only about uh, two-fifths of the mechanism. Wow. So only less than... Less than 25% of the mechanism yes. you've got. There. But from just looking at the gears, you can tell what they do. Yes. And being astronomers, 
we know some periodicities, we know how the planets move, we know how some, the sun and the moon move in the sky. So by studying the ratio of the teeth, of the number of teeth of the gears, we can calculate what they do and then see if you have, say, a train of gears, the first gear transmits this rotation to the second one, to the third one, to the fourth one. So you have to take the ratio of all of them. So like uh, 20, 223 divided by 5 uh, times uh, 24 divided by 7, etc., etc. We can calculate what is the output at the very last end of the gear train. And then we know what they did, this gear train, what they did. And uh, how many how many gears have you got? How many gears do you uh, know what they do? Yes, we, we have found and we know for certain that we have about 30 gears. In our reconstruction, we used a few more gears, but they were certain what they were doing. So we were not questioned that there would be some other gear. Because, for example, if you find a pointer saying Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, etc., etc., and you do not know what gear was going through this pointer, then... You say this gear must have seven teeth, so a full rotation will give you a weekly calendar. So I'm, I'm guessing there's a 365-toothed gear? Uh, yes, okay, there's the gears with 365 teeth, the gears with 223, 224, uh, the smallest one has nine teeth, etc., <clears throat> etc. And uh, how, big is, how big is the biggest one, and how big is the smallest one? The, the biggest one is 30 centimeters in diameter, and the small one is less than a centimeter. It's about 0.762 centimeters. So these things, which were crafted from bronze? Bronze, a combination of copper and tin. In fact, tin was produced in, in Britain. I mean, most likely, the tin could have come from Britain. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Wow. So is that one of the biggest reserves of tin found in ancient Europe? Well, in, for ancient times, mm. it is known. There's a, the traveling uh, experience of Pythias the Greek, who traveled from Masai, Masalia in Greek, to um, maybe up to the Orkney Islands. And he describes step by step where he went through, what was the, the shadow of the sun, so you know the geographical latitude. And he did certainly go through Cornwall. So this is where you have your tin uh, mines. And it's amazing that well, some of the stuff that you make it from could have come from all over Europe. And actually, this was found in a shipwreck. Could you go, give us a bit of history about and why it was found off an island called Antikythera, where it gets its name from? How did that come about? Yes. Well, one of the things that I do not know, and I will start from this, is if it was found in the front of the ship or in the back of the ship. In 1900, they did not record everything accurately. If it was found close to the captain's quarters, this could be a navigational instrument. We have found the word sun ray in the text, and why should an ancient person write the word sun ray in the text? Probably, maybe they had a kind of bamboo and they were pointing at the sun, then measuring the height of the sun. In the same way, they could do the same for, for planets or for stars, and this is the beginning of actually finding geographic longitude, mm. which is very difficult to find if you do not have a timepiece, but maybe this can be done with tables. But even 2,000 years ago, I guess this was? About 2,000 years ago. And you basically you know that because of the font that's inscribed on the instructions <laughs> yes. to yes. this mechanism. So could you tell us yes. a bit about that? Yes, yes. Um, so the Antikythera mechanism has about 3,000 letters on it that we have found, must be many more. Uh, and by investigating the style of the letters, uh, we can calculate the age. So, as you say, the font used <laughs> by the ancient uh, technician, uh, we can calculate what is the age when this uh, machine was um, uh, built. Nowadays, we are trying 
to find out uh, through calculating the eclipse cycle that uh, is on the sun antikythera mechanism and this is also gives us a date around the second century BC as we had calculated from the style of the letters so they, they match that's a, yes well that's a good result to show that you're on the right track um, but coming back to what we were talking about so it was on a ship and the ship sank what else was on the ship Oh, there were lots of um, lagini. This is a material made out of um, clay. Uh, in fact, this lagini, this pot, in the ancient times, was what we have today is a plastic bag. So they were, they were actually transporting goods uh, through clay pots. And uh, if they had transported wine or olive oil, then this should be discarded because you cannot put anything else in it. Uh, so one way of actually finding out the ancient trade routes is to follow the fragments of broken clay. And this was done by a British archaeologist, and we now know what, the, what are the, the, the trade routes in ancient times, between at least Marseille and northern, northern Europe. So it had, we have found um, 104 statues or fragments of these statues, legs, head, um, bronze arms, etc., etc. It had um, very good uh, artistic glassware. Uh, it had some uh, very nice uh, jewelry. In fact, Monica Jackson from Australia, she has studied these cosmetics, this oil everything they found there, and she has found copies of this in several museums around Europe. One of them is in Delos, one was in something in the Eastern Europe. And so I think what has happened at Delos, which is like the Cayman Islands of the ancient times, so no taxation, uh, there was somebody who was making this jewelry and then he was selling it. So this is why some was found at Delos and some was found in other museums. Very, with high similarities like the ones at the Antikythera mechanism. Mm. So this boat probably, which is a very large boat, probably started from Ephesus, Pergamum, because coins from that era were found, and then it went to Rhodos, Kos, uh, maybe to Simi, maybe to Paros, and then was going through the Straits of Peloponnese to Crete, and there it sank. Uh, so it had uh, been collecting, should I call it loot, maybe, mm. uh, or treasure. It is full of treasure, yes. Maybe some of the, some of the, some of the uh, statues, they are not of very high quality, so probably it was quickly made and they want to actually give them as ornaments at the villas of the uh, nobles, the nobility in Rome. So you mentioned that some of the jewellery found on the ship has been found elsewhere. Do you yes. think that um, there could be another Antikythera mechanism out there somewhere? Is yeah. this a one-of-a-kind object? I don't think it could be one-of-a-time object because uh, when we made it, we made so many mistakes that they made parts of it and then the other part wouldn't fit, etc., etc. We discarded the first part. So I have the feeling that probably the Antikythera mechanism was made, first of all, it was a very good collaboration between a very uh, good scientist and astronomer uh, and a mathematician and a charismatic artist who actually did the inscriptions and the cutting the gears, etc., etc., it um it also had a use in predicting the Olympic Games. Who would have required something like this? Well, it didn't have really a certain aim. I think it was probably an educational instrument. Uh, I can imagine Aristarchus 
uh, or probably Hipparchus in uh, Rhodos on the stadium there that he had his observatory, gathering his students around him and having the antikythera mechanism there in front of him. And doing and will tell him, Yes, like, look at this star, it's moving like this. Let's look at it on the antikythera mechanism. And the moon, did you observe the moon? Did you see what is the phase of the moon? Let's rotate the antikythera mechanism dials and find today's date and uh, look. The phase of the moon is exactly what we see now. So in a similar way to an astrolabe is at an observatory now. Yes, yes. yes astrolabe could be could also be an astrolabe. We found some evidence recently. Mm. You said that um, whenever you study it, it brings you complete new ideas on a on what else it could do because obviously you, you haven't found everything yet. Have you got any up-and-coming theories about new parts that you've only just discovered? This is very, very, very difficult to... To, to say because mm. not, we still need to investigate little things. Of course, I think that we do have the equation of time, which could is something you, completely new. Could you, um, for our listeners, could you quickly tell us what the equation of time is? Oh, this is the difference between the time shown by a sundial, and because the moon and because the sun moves faster and slower as it moves in an elliptical orbit around the Earth as a new at this time, they does, does not show the evenly flow of this mean solar time that our watches and our clocks show. You know, our clocks do not go faster and slower, but the sun does move faster and slower. But don't forget that the year is the rotation of the Earth around the sun. Uh, the day is the rotation of the Earth around its axis. So they're all astronomical calculations. So the difference between the, the shadow of the sun that shows on sundials the time and the mean solar time shown by our watches is the equation of time. It starts in January being negative, so we have to subtract a few minutes, goes further negative, then goes up again, uh, it becomes positive, and again around June, then again negative, very negative, it goes all the way up again, becomes very, very positive. The very, that they say, is something like between 14 and 16 minutes. Does this equation change depending on where you are in the world? It doesn't change um, on geographical latitude, but changes with time. Mm. And this is because we have the precession of the axis of rotation of the Earth around the axis of the ecliptic. The ecliptic is the orbit, the orbital plane of the Earth around the Sun. So the, the axis of the ecliptic is perpendicular to this plane. And the Earth's axis forms 23.5 degrees around this axis and moves like this in 25,000 uh, 25, years. So it changes slowly. It changes slowly, but it's still fairly accurate even now. Oh, yes, yes. yes. It, it changes about 30 degrees per, per 2,000 years. I think it keeps better time than my watch, actually. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> but there are, there are some things that change with the latitude that the object is at, which is, have given you some hints as to where it was actually used. Is that correct? Okay, I did not explain this during my lecture. Let me explain it now. Mm. Uh, uh, the Antikythera mechanism had inscribed in the front panel a parapigma. Now, a parapigma consists of uh, astronomical events that happen once per year. You probably know that uh, as the Earth moves around the Sun, the Sun seems to be projected at different constellations from day to day or probably from month to month. There are 12 constellations in the orbital plane of the Earth around the Sun, which we call the zodiac constellations. So you you are a certain zodiac and I'm a different one. 
from day to day, the sun as it moves among the stars, it goes close to a star, it passed it, and then it leaves it behind him. As the sun moves close to the star, suddenly, of course, there is one day that is so close that the star cannot uh, cannot be seen. The sun sets, and the star sets behind him, but the sun is so close to it that the star cannot be seen. This is called in ancient Greek the epitoli, which is the, the closest point of the sun to this star uh, at uh, during the, the setting of the sun. The same thing then goes on. The sun comes closer and closer to the star. It goes past it. And at daytime, it, when the, the, the sunrise comes, the star uh, rises first and the sun behind it. You cannot see it. After a day, the sun moves away by one degree away from the star. Another day, another degree. Eventually, there comes a day that the star is visible for the first time this year on, on the sky. This was a very, very important date in ancient times. For example, I know that the morning rising of the star Sirius, the brightest star on the sky, was very important to the Egyptians because the flooding of the Nile was coming immediately after, bringing new and fertile land in the Egyptian plains, and the pharaoh, or the king, was offering a big prize to the person who come to him and say, well, look, I have observed the morning rising of the star Sirius. There are events that happen once per year, and they also depend on the geographical latitude. Mm. So the, the, the sequence of these rising and settings that I described are different in the equator from the North Pole. In fact, in the North Pole, probably you know that the sun doesn't rise, doesn't rise for six months and rises. So, uh, by studying the parapigma, we have found that the antikythera mechanism could be used between 33 degrees geographical latitude and about 38. Does that rule out Egypt? Could the person who owned this have? Yes. Um, oh, so we couldn't have got the prize every yeah. year. Yeah, we are surprised. We are surprised that uh, it rules out Egypt because we are expecting to have some connection with the Egyptian calendar, mm. in particular because the calendar in the front side of, of the mechanism has Egyptian names. Okay, all of them were written in Greek letters, but it did have the names in Egyptian, not the Greek names. So we are expecting to have some connection with uh, Egypt, but the parapigma tells us that it could not have been used there. Wow. Uh, do you have any idea why? Or is that one of the mysteries that is Because it was not made there. Mm. Although, of course, uh, Alexandria is well known from ancient times uh, from people that constructed uh, automata like Iron uh, uh, of Alexandria and like uh, Ctesivius, uh, people that actually made some automatic machines uh, to impress people. Uh, and this, these machines, though, impress us as well. It impresses nowadays. us all these years later, yeah. Um, one question that I see you're asked a lot, uh, which is a very good one, is, is this machine heliocentric or is it a geocentric machine? The machine was a geocentric machine. So if you see in the front dial, you have the Earth in the middle and the pointers of the sun and the moon, they rotate around the, the Earth, around the observer. So it was a geocentric machine. However, I'm pretty sure that the guy that actually made that antikythera mechanism knew about the heliocentric system uh, but it was a heresy at the time mm. so I presume he did not want to say this and even more to construct such a system Would you say it's easier to construct a system like this for heliocentric versus geocentric? Oh, by far easier 
I mean, the, all the, it, it is easily explained that the positions of the, of Mars and the, 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 the orbit of Mars and the planets around the sun is much easier to, to explain with the heliocentric system. Mm. For the geocentric system, you have to have epicycles and epicycles and different centers that the Earth is, uh, there's also a different center in the solar system. Uh, I have the feeling that uh, Aristotle used 53 cycles and epicycles for his model of the solar system in order to justify all the peculiar movements of the moon and the planets and the sky. Yeah, it's, uh, it's incredible because um, that all boils down to some very fine mechanisms. And I've seen some of the shafts and some of the gears. Uh, you showed them in your talk. They're just so precise. Were these made by machine tools or cutting materials? Uh, yes, we have found quite a lot of about it in the literature. In particular, I would like to stay on uh, a tablet found in um, LFCs. It is in a museum there. One can find it. Uh, where it describes buying of poles and uh, square parts of the columns. You see, so the ancient times... List. A shopping list. Who wants a shopping list? <laughs> okay, an order, a shopping order. Mm. Um, you see, in the ancient times, when they built a monument or uh, the Acropolis, in the middle, they used to put some metal. And this metal has to be very precisely made. And uh, this is, uh, in ellipsis, is a description uh, of a shopping list by somebody who would like to order things for doors to be opening and closing. And it, particularly it says that you should lay the poles round so that they move freely inside the square parts of it which have to be cut very accurately and the side should be square and not deviate from this specimen that I give you. They Furthermore, they should be made out of of uh, bronze and describes that bronze is 11 parts copper and one part tin. So it's a very bespoke order. Very, 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 very precise order. That's just sent to some craftsmen. It's, it's like my wife giving me a, a list of shopping <laughs> and I have to go to a supermarket and say, what is this? I do not know what it is, but please give it to me. So do you know if this mechanism was created all in one piece or do you think it's been uh, created over a period oh, of time? That's a very good question. Um, first of all, you have not found in the Antikythera mechanism who constructed it. So we have not found the made in China is not there. We have not found it. Uh, <laughs> Would something uh, like that have had a signature somewhere? If you have well, we have thing? been looking at all the gears. We have been trying to find if there was a signature, mm. and we have not found one. At least there were not very that many astronomers that could do the, the maths and the astronomy, which is uh, inbuilt in the Antikythera mechanism. Uh, I did mention Hipparchus a couple of times. Mm. Uh, also, some people have suggested uh, Archimedes, but Archimedes died three generations before the Antikythera mechanism was constructed. He was killed and the Syracuse, where he lived and worked, was destroyed by the Romans and so no, no laboratories were actually left behind. So, I can see that maybe somebody started working on the front part of the mechanism uh, describing the position of the sun and the moon, how fast the moon moves. You know, the moon moves uh, once a month around the sky. Uh, the sun moves around in uh, 360 degrees and per day uh, for, for sunset and sun rising. Uh, so maybe somebody actually did this uh, reconstruction of the front part and then somebody who's a very clever person said, well, we can use the same movement of the sun and the moon to calculate other things. So they added the backside. Could be. 
We do not have any more evidence of what I'm telling you, but it could, could very well be. This mechanism was lost, and there are no other examples of this in existence. How long was it before the next astronomical clock, or something that did the same sort of thing as this, came along? How many years? Yes, I see your question has two parts. The one is why this technique was lost. Uh, that was the time that the Greeks were completely captured by the Romans. And uh, what I see is that uh, that a bird does not sing loudly and well in a cage. So artists and scientists probably did not want to, 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 to work under oppression. The Romans were very good in the road building, but not they were not good in geometry, in astronomy, etc., etc. Then the other thing is, how long did it take until you calculated and made another machine which was similar to the Antikythera mechanism. The, I know of two other machines that were made before the Prague clock. Mm. One of them was made here in England. It was made by William of Wellingford in 1261, but it was not as complicated as the Antikythera mechanism. And the other one is the Astrarium of De Dondi in North Italy, uh, maybe around Padova, I'm not sure. Uh, the device that actually resembles in many aspects what the Antikythera me- mechanism did is the Prague clock that if you go there, you can admire it and know that uh, some parts of it could be uh, taken from the Antikythera mechanism. It's amazing. And that was maybe 1,000 years later that was created. 15, 15 centuries later. 15 centuries later. And we still don't know everything that this mechanism does because no. we don't have everything from it. Yes, it's it's nice not to know everything, isn't it? Mm. I mean, just imagine if you know anything, life is going to be boring. So, yes, every time that we actually investigate the Antikythera mechanism, we seem to be finding new results, and then we have to go back and investigate these results, read uh, new journals, new books about the knowledge of the time uh, of the Antikythera mechanism and see if what we have found was well-known knowledge at the time or if it's something completely new. So there's a challenge with the Antikythera mechanism, every time that we look at it, we find something new and we do not know how, what, it, what it does. And um, are you tempted to go back and look for more gears at the bottom of the ocean? Uh, uh, yes, yeah, some marine excavations are being organized in collaboration between the Woods Hole Institute in Boston, United States, and the effort of uh, marine archaeology in Greece, uh, with very good results. I can describe some of them if you like to. Uh, but we have not found anything about the Antikythera mechanism. They have found lots of other things concerning statues, concerning, oh, a spear, a very, very well-preserved spear. They have found lots of metal parts. Uh, I haven't, I do not know the very latest thing. I have to see one of the PhD students of the Aristotle University, who is an archaeologist and an architect at the same time. And he's a diver as well. Uh-huh, so, cool. so he's perfectly he's, equipped to get everything. He's, he's the best person to actually go down and investigate. But um, you will be back in a few months' time to give another talk at Manchester, is that correct? Maybe. Nothing that has been fixed yet, but uh, if, I, if it does, I... Well, if, if you are, hopefully we'll be able to grab you again, because could, I could talk about this all day. It's really cool. But it would also be nice to talk to you about your research. So uh, it'd be lovely to have you back on the Jocast in the future. Well, thank you very much. And thank you. Uh, I'm looking forward to coming back, if I may, in Manchester, a place that I, I spent many of my years many moments I do remember from my studentship here at Jodrell Bank and at University of Manchester at the Schuster Laboratory with my professors. I think that the only moments that you actually have lived 
are the moments that we remember. Mm. Any other moments that we do not remember, they have just passed uh, away from us. We do not remember them. We do not leave them. Mm. So I have the feeling that it's nice that I came back. So many good and sweet memories came back to me. This was the um, the first time you've been invited to speak at Manchester since Correct. you left. Correct. Um, which is which is scandalous, really. Hopefully. <laughs> okay, I have spoken for it in Oxford and have spoken in other places as well and many other countries in the world. Well, we really hope to have you back again. But thank you. This has been fascinating. Cheers. Thanks for that, Charlie. And now we move on to the part of the show about things we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. Okay, so for my odds and ends, I, I'm going to talk about... Um, this age map of the Milky Way, which has been created. So astronomers at the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy have developed a, a couple of new tools for determining the age of red giant stars from its um, optical spectrum. Uh, these tools have then been applied to the Apogee Survey and NASA's Kepler Space Telescope, uh, some data from there, and it gives estimates of the ages of nearly 100,000 stars throughout the Milky Way, which... Um, allows the, the MPIA team, led by astronomers uh, Melissa Ness and Marie Martig, uh, to create an age map of our galaxy. Um, so they can tell you how old each of these stars is, and they know roughly where it is and how far away from the galactic centre it is. Um, you can put these two values together and do a nice sort of colour scale map for, for, for the stars, and, and using this you can um, sort of test theories on the formation and evolution of the Milky Way. So one of the... Um, theoretical predictions for for the evolution of a galaxy such as our as our own is that um it started the galactic um stellar disk should have started forming from the inside so near the galactic center uh and the and then evolved outwards so you'd have older stars in the middle and younger ones uh towards the edge and the the map created by these astronomers does confirm this this prediction so um it's it's hard to describe this nice-looking map on an audio podcast, so we'll put a picture of it in the uh, in the show notes or a link to the press release. Um, and one of my favourite things, as well as the, the cool scientific results, is the one of the tools they use to identify or determine the ages of uh, these these uh, red giant stars is called the Canon. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and there's a long paper about what the Canon does and how it uses sort of benchmark stars with really well-defined ages and compares their spectrum to other stars. Um, but it refers to it throughout always as the canon. <laughs> is that an acronym? Because you're saying it as though it's all in capital letters. Uh, it's always in italics. Uh, <laughs> and I don't think it is an acronym. I think it, they just went for the canon. There's kind of sentences in the paper like the canon learns <laughs> from the known label references. And... I'll also point out that not only is the word canon in italics, but also the word the. Yes. <laughs> It's the cannon. See, I, I just have now a, a, an image of one of those those cannons that fires people in circuses, but except firing massive supergiant stars across the galaxy. How many stars did you say they measured? Uh, hundred thousand. About hundred thousand, yes. So yeah. only what a millionth of the stars in the galaxy. Yes, but yeah. if they're distributed, yeah, throughout. Um, but it's pretty cool what you can do with with a millionth of the stars in the galaxy. How yeah. much you can tell from that size of population. And I believe this is sort of a, a, a starting point because some of these. Um, Surveys are going to provide more data as, as time goes on, so they'll be able to refine them up. And, and using the cannon. Using the cannon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, from, from one kind of spectra to another kind of spectra, there's a, another press release out this January on behalf of Swinburne University of Technology. So we got it through the Royal Astronomical Society in the UK. But this is um, 
a paper that's not actually out yet at the time of recording, um, but it's results that were presented at the American Astronomical Society meeting, which is all, always happens at the beginning of January in, in America. And so what this team have done is they've had a look at, through archive data, so this is not new data, but they've looked at spectra from archive data looking for ancient gas clouds. What they're trying to find is evidence of the first gas clouds that were enriched by the first population of stars after the Big, ba the big Bang. So at the beginning of the universe, Big Bang happens and you've got mostly hydrogen and helium. Some of that gas starts to collapse and you get stars forming. And then eventually those stars, the big ones anyway, start to go supernovae and create heavier elements, which then go on to enrich the interstellar medium. Now, the gas that we see today in our own galaxy has been enriched by several generations of stars and contains lots of heavy elements. But the further back in the universe you go, the higher redshift you look at, the fewer of those heavy elements you find because the fewer supernovae that have happened and the fewer heavy elements have been created. So what they've done is they've looked at this archive data and found in one particular case a gas cloud between us and a distant galaxy and they can use that distant galaxy sort of like as a, a torch looking through the gas cloud and look at the absorption caused by that gas cloud that's in between. So they're not actually directly looking at the gas cloud, they're looking at the absorption caused by the gas in that cloud um, on the light from the background galaxy. Um, and this works because every chemical element has a different spectrum. So when you look at the absorption lines, you, you can tell what chemicals are in the cloud by looking at where those spectral lines are. And so this is what they've done, and they've worked out that this, this particular gas cloud that they found uh, was observed 1.8 billion years after the Big Bang. That's, that's where it exists in time, that's where we're seeing the light from. And it looks, well, there are two possible explanations for the, for the amount of chemicals that they're seeing in the cloud. Uh, one of them is that it's enriched by this first population of stars. Um, or another explanation is that it was actually a much later cloud. It's actually been um, enriched by, by second generation stars as well. Um, but they need a bit more data to, to kind of work that out. But it's still, it's pretty cool. It's the first time I think that um, a cloud enriched by first generation stars has been, well, thought to have been found anyway. So it's kind of cool. Do we have any firm dates on when the first generation stars are about? Or is, does this sort of put a limit on it? Oh, I think this is one of the reasons why they're looking for this, is to actually try and put a, a better defined limit on when this population of stars actually existed. Just one of the things to say alongside that, it's, uh, you mentioned this is like the first time we're seeing a first generation of stars, uh, but this is like a first generation of star or gas from the first generation of stars in the early universe. I work with uh, several people who work on dwarf galaxies who like to brag that their dwarf galaxies are like uh, galaxies in the early universe and that they too are places where there are very few heavy elements and it's uh, at least uh, one object, one's Wiki 18 is the type of thing which may be undergoing its uh, first early burst of uh, star formation as well. Yeah, absolutely. But dwarf galaxies in the nearby universe are a lot easier to study than distant gas clouds. So this, this well, is why this has taken a lot longer, because it's a lot harder to do. That's true. Although, on the other hand, dwarf galaxies are also much fainter and smaller. And they deserve your love. <laughs> I have nothing against dwarf galaxies. I'm not sizest when it comes to galaxies. I like dwarf galaxies too. But I think this is really cool. Um, I think it's that exciting. And something else that's really exciting um, that has, uns has really surprisingly gone unmentioned on the Jogcast for the last two months uh, is my unmend. Um, so this is about a person. It's, a it's about a man who's had considerable news coverage for the last two months or so. But we've neglected to talk about him on the Jogcast at all. Well, that's because I prefer not to get into American politics. <laughs> <and> so, <laughs> especially given some of the offensive uh, comments made by some of the people well, running for office. Luckily, this guy's not 
an American <laughs> politician, but have we got any other guesses as to who it might be? I, I can't be? believe that you've left him out if it's who I'm thinking of. Is it Tim Peake? It's Tim Peake. Oh it is God. indeed Whoa. Tim Peake. <laughs> so Tim was obviously the first British European Space Agency astronaut, and he went up onto the International Space Station on the 15th of December. 2015. Some of us watched the launch live at Jodrell Bank. I don't know who else was there of here, but I was watching it on the television. We were we in this in room in watching room, it yeah. in the lecture theatre. So. Yeah. Oh, so we swapped round because usually Megan's at Jodrell Bank and I'm not. So. Yeah. <laughs> and um, some people recorded a good luck message for him on the way as well, didn't they? So, um, yeah, I can't believe that he didn't make it into the last two months worth of episodes. Um, so what I did was I uh, went through the news, I trawled through the news, and I tried to put together uh, a sort of a little a diary of different things that he's been up to in space, uh, some of the interesting things that have happened along the way. And actually, if you if you forget that he's sitting on the International Space Station at the moment, some of it sounds quite quite sad in a way. So... so um, <clears throat> For example, he tried to ring home over the weekend and he got an answer phone message because his parents had popped out and this was the weekend after the launch and that was the first time he tried to ring home. Um, he got him in the end. He's also being replaced. Well, he was also replaced at his family Christmas dinner by a cardboard cutout called Flat Tim, <laughs> which was made for him by uh, the village where he lives, which was made for the parents, uh, made for his parents by the village in which they live. So I guess that's nice for them, but I don't know how I'd feel about a flat... A flat pack astronaut. Yeah. <laughs> Does um, he come with an Allen key? <laughs> um, but he's done some fun stuff as well. He's uh, He got to watch Star Wars up there, uh, which was nice. Apparently there uh, was a copy waiting for him, which is pretty impressive. Um, I wonder if he waited until the 17th. So there was a copy up there before it came out. Mm. Oh. And can you think of a better place to watch it? I guess it's it's pretty secure up there. Yeah, but I can't imagine they've got a full like IMAX surround sound system there. <laughs> so um, he, uh, <clears throat> when he went up, as per tradition, astronauts on a launch get to pick three songs that are played during the launch. Tim Pete was no exception. Can anyone ever think about any of the things that he might have chosen? Please don't let it be Europe's final countdown. No. <laughs> That'd be a bit pessimistic. No. The, the, the one that comes to my mind is Pink Floyd's Learning to Fly. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, so he picks Queen's Don't Stop Me Now, U2's A Beautiful Day, and Cole plays A Sky Full of Stars, and Adam is cringing. <laughs> Not he should have come but... with the Pink Floyd option. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that's what he has been getting up to. Um, and actually, at time of recording, this hasn't happened. But this, we are endeavouring to get this episode out on the Jodcast birthday, which is the 14th. So if you're listening to this on our birthday, the day after, which is the 15th of January, he'll be doing a spacewalk to repair a malfunctioning voltage regula regulator. And he will be the first British citizen to do a spacewalk. So that's very exciting stuff. And his antics will continue into the new year. Uh, in April, he's going to be running a marathon on the International Space Station. So Fixed in place, right? On a treadmill. <laughs> he will be on a treadmill. Yeah. Um, yes. Cool. We'd be doing a marathon at the same time as anything else is happening on Earth. We'd be doing it at the same time as the London Marathon. Ah, well, makes sense. Which is sense. April the 24th. He'll be starting at 10am GMT, and he's set himself three and a half to four hours to do it. And he's done one before, but he's not trying to break a record, because I think that the... Um, 
the, the folk down below are going to be monitoring him in lots of different ways. So I reckon it's pretty, pretty tricky to run a, a marathon or a treadmill in space. Yep. So. There are just issues with bone and uh, muscle uh, loss uh, up in space as well with uh, astronauts. And uh, I suspect that a lot of medical science in terms of uh, people living in weightlessness has advanced over the decades that we've had people up in space, but that would be a serious concern. Mm. So astronauts uh, have to exercise for about two hours a day while they're up there. And he'll be coming to the end of his uh, tenure, which is six months, I think, by April. So, yeah, he'll. Um, I, I think part of the mission is to observe what happens to the human body over that period of time in space. So, yeah, it'll be really interesting stuff. And good luck to him. Hopefully he'll have better luck than when he tried to call home on Christmas Eve and accidentally rang a grandma who hung up on him thinking that he was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> when he said, hello, is this Earth? <laughs> so my odd and end is uh, kind of a, uh, a relatively straightforward type of thing the american astronomical society uh just held its annual winter meeting they have two meetings every year and uh, the meetings are among the largest astronomy meetings in the world and they generate lots and lots of press releases. And I think uh, uh, some of the other odds and ends which we've heard uh, came from uh, that. And uh, the one that I wanted to talk about was something which I first saw on the BBC website, which was about Chandra observations of M51, which is also known as the Whirlpool Galaxy. Uh, Chandra is an X-ray uh, observatory, which has been in space for well over a decade. It's done lots of great stuff. It's observed M51 before, but in this particular observation, the astronomers decided to focus on a different part of M51. Uh, for people who uh, aren't quite familiar with this galaxy, it's an interacting uh, system. It's actually uh, one of the best examples of an interacting uh, galaxy system. Uh, close to the Milky Way galaxy, there's the really big spiral galaxy, which gives the Whirlpool galaxy its name. Uh, that's called NGC 5194. And then that is uh, physically connected to a weird kind of spheroidal type galaxy, which astronomers don't know how to classify, which is named NGC 5195. Most people, including me in my previous publications, usually look at the big, pretty spiral galaxy <laughs> and just ignore the poor little uh, spheroidal thing, uh, partly because it's like we don't know what to make of the spheroidal thing and partly because we're interested in big spirals. So you um, like spirals and you like dwarfs, but not spheroidals. <laughs> well... Indeed, because it's like, um, from my particular perspective, it's uh, I've actually published a few papers with uh, M51 and um, by work in infrared uh, data, typically, um, infrared data tends to look very blurry compared to images most other wave bands because it's uh, the wavelength of light is longer and you have to build really big telescopes uh, to actually make the images not look blurry. Uh, but then you also have to put the telescopes in space because the Earth's atmosphere also produces lots of infrared emission. So it's like in all of the images, all of the infrared images I have seen of M51, NGC 5195 looks like a dot. <laughs> oh, except for the Spitzer 8 micron image where you can actually see a little bit of a uh, uh, weird freakish uh, tidal tail which comes out of the center. But 
most other images, it looks like a dot. However, it doesn't look like a dot in the Chandra X-ray uh, data uh, because uh, X-ray telescopes typically have excellent spatial resolution. They can see stuff with like really great detail. As I was saying, astronomers decided to focus on the uh, spheroidal galaxy and the Whirlpool galaxy system. They actually came up with a rather complicated image of the structure of the X-ray emission in the center. They found X-ray emission from a supermassive black hole in the center of the galaxy. Uh, this isn't terribly surprising because it's, uh, astronomers have seen X-ray emission from uh, a lot of supermassive black holes in the centers of lots of uh, galaxies. It does sound like, uh, making it sound like we're just sort of like uh, overwhelmed with uh, uh, supermassive black holes these days. And to the average astronomer, they've seen so many that's no longer that special. But, you know, it's for, for general public, I could still see it sort of exciting that uh, people are looking at a uh, supermassive black hole. Hey, I think they're exciting. <laughs> <laughs> how, how can you distinguish between one another? Though? I reckon they all look pretty similar, right? They actually galaxies. look very different. <laughs> the galaxies about them look different. Well, no, the black holes themselves also look different, too. The jets are different and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I'm actually working on one right now where it's... Um, uh, I, I'm not going to give away too much of my research until it's published, but I'm working on a galaxy right now with a supermassive black hole, which is completely obscured by interstellar dust. Uh, and I'm actually not doing much more with the black hole beyond that, but it's I can just pretend it's not there. <laughs> but in any case, to uh, get back to uh, NGC 5195, um, what astronomers found that was really interesting in this is that they found a couple of bow shocks, which they refer to in the uh, press release as burps. Now, it looks like there were a couple of waves of gas that were blown out of the region around the black hole, not uh, the black hole itself, mm -hmm. but of the region around the black hole. Uh, one of these uh, shock waves was blown out about 3 million years ago, and the other one was blown out about uh, 6 million years ago. Uh, and uh, it's a rather pretty picture uh, from the Chandra X-ray Observatory. And one of the inane reasons why I wanted to talk about this was because uh, when I saw the original news article on the BBC website, they misidentified the poor dwarf galaxy. Mm. <laughs> uh, so they identified the uh, dwarf spheroidal galaxy as uh, NGC 5194, or they made some other confusing comments. But uh, they said the burst was coming from NGC 5194. Now, the BBC corrected uh, their uh, news article a few hours later. But if you go to the Internet Archive and use the Wayback Machine, you can uh, go back to when the article was first posted and see that they uh, accidentally got the uh, name incorrect. So what was the correct name? Uh, the object is NGC 5195. And what, what do the uh, numbers actually stand for in this case? Because in different sort of objects, they mean different things, right? So Well, they're just catalog numbers. In this case, the... Uh, object is the 5195th object in the new general catalog, which was a catalog of objects put together in the late 1800s. Of, um, it's a catalog of 
nebulae and clusters, but back in the 1800s, nebulae included uh, both the uh, things that we would still call nebulae, uh, gas clouds within uh, the Milky Way galaxy, as well as uh, uh, galaxies uh, outside the Milky Way, which people didn't realize at the time were, were objects outside the outside Milky Way. The Milky that was Way. the... the- Great anything, debate. anything faint and fuzzy, basically. Mm, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that became a great debate about like uh, fifty years or so after the cat, or forty or fifty years after the catalog was put together. But whether galaxies were inside or outside the Milky Way, yeah. And we still call it the new general catalog. <laughs> <laughs> the right general catalog. <laughs> so the next one has to be like the very new or the extremely the new, ultra new. Yes. <laughs> well, people going by uh, astronomical well, there, conventions. There was the uh, UGC, which I believe stands for Uppsala. Uppsala General Catalog. And there's also uh, the PGC, which I can't recall what that stands for. And then you have like lots of uh, telescopes now. Uh, we'll do things like all-sky surveys and we'll uh, create their own uh, names for everything, but the names are really boring. So it's like uh, the two mass survey, the two micron all sky survey. You produce names for lots and lots of objects in the sky, but the uh, name sort of consists of the word two mass followed by uh, a <laughs> large series of numbers yeah. which relate to the coordinates of the object. So the BBC corrected their mistake, right? Oh, yes. Uh, but someone who's never been wrong is Joe Zuntz, who now answers your astronomical questions in Ask an Astronomer. Hello and welcome to Ask an Astronomer. I'm Hannah and with me is Joe Zuntz, who is our astronomer this week. So our first question is from Kenny McLeod. I think that's how you pronounce it. If not, I'm sorry. He has two questions, actually. The first part is, I'm confused about the main cause of redshift in distant galaxies. Is it because galaxies are moving apart relative to space-time, or is it because space-time itself is expanding? The answer is the latter. Space-time itself is expanding. If you try and make sense of things in a Newtonian or relativistic or special relativistic framework, um, where the galaxies themselves are moving, which is how Edwin Hubble originally saw things when he measured this effect first, then you very quickly run into problems. Um, things like you find the galaxies have to go faster than light in some situations, or or problems like that. So actually, our understanding of it is that space-time itself is expanding rather than just the galaxies themselves moving. Yes. So it seems like these other galaxies are moving faster than the speed of light was. Potentially, yes. Um, so observationally, it looks exactly the same as if, or for, for small local galaxies, it looks exactly the same as if um, the galaxy is just moving away from us. So that's that's why we originally thought of it this way. But actually, when you look at things on a more large scale, when you have to use general general relativity, the full uh, Einsteinian picture of gravity to explain things, then you really do have to have to think of things a little bit differently. Yeah. And so the second part of his question is, does that mean that the expansion of space stretches the light, giving it a longer wavelength and a lower frequency, hence the redshift effect? And if that's the case, would that make light the only ruler by which the expansion of the universe can be measured, as it's the only thing in our universe that has some of its properties affected by the expansion, e.g. the frequency is affected but not speed? So the first caveat here is that metaphors like stretching can sometimes mislead you when you're thinking about relativity. Uh, but basically, yes, um, you can think of the expansion of space as stretching photons out and causing redshift. That's one of the ways we visualise that thing happening. Now, the real explanation for that is a little bit more complicated and involves a relationship between density and pressure in radiation and how that is different from matter. But the, the basic idea is that, yes, the basic way we think of it is that, that the expansion of space is stretching photons. 
Now, to the second part of that question, uh, light isn't actually the only thing that's measurable like this. Um, firstly, gravitational waves, for one thing, also are redshifted in the same kind of way. Um, but photons are certainly the only easily detectable individual thing that's redshifted and, and stretched in the same kind of way that we can observe directly as seeing the expansion. But as well as looking for individual objects, and this is a fortunate thing for our observations, we can also look at groups of objects, and in particular the distribution of galaxies across the sky. Is, is a very good example. It turns out there's a characteristic scale and of the clustering of galaxies, so that groups of galaxies tend to come in blobs of a particular size, which is about 150 megaparsecs, or about 500 light years. Um, and that size is also stretched out as the universe expands, um, because it's, um, the, it's made of galaxies, so or galaxies are a thing that's defining that size, so as they expand apart, this scale expands too. Now this effect, which is called baryon acoustic oscillations, is one of the most important cosmological probes. So it's true that an individual, as an individual object or an individual observ observational kind of unit, the only thing we can see being stretched is, is photons. But if we look at ensembles objects or patterns in the sky, we can see those being stretched as well. So the next question is from uh, Martin. Again, it's in two parts. The first part, uh, the speed of light is the fastest anything goes through space. Is there a limit to how fast space it's, itself can expand? The answer is no, and there's no limits in known physics. We don't know of a limit. There's nothing built into GR, general relativity, with rules about this that, that, that controls this. Uh, so in the early universe, did that expand faster than light then? Yes, absolutely. Um, we, we think that in an early period of the universe, the inflationary period, that did happen. Um, and that's not a, a problem for any kind of relativity at all. Okay, so that leads on quite nicely to the next part of the question. Are there any theories that suggest the expansion of space was effectively infinite at t equals zero? the Big Bang, and then fell. That conflicts with supernova type 1a evidence, which is in, that the rate of expansion is increasing, but I'm not sure how well type 1a supernovae are understood. So another important caveat here, that the period very near t equals zero, the very, very early part of the universe, is still quite uncertain, um, both observationally and theoretically. Um, it's likely to stay that way observationally because it's very, very hard to probe that, that part of the universe, except very indirectly. Um, but, you know, theories are always being developed for this period. Having said that, the, the basic models have cosmic expansion dominated by radiation in this early period, which we call the pre-inflationary period. And in these models, the expansion rate does tend to infinity as you get closer and closer to the beginning of the universe. Now, we suspect that other physics will come into play at some point, and this won't be the entire story, and so we, we sort of we don't really like this idea of, of infinities in general, um, but it, that is kind of the basic model of this thing. Now, this doesn't conflict with the supernova evidence that you talked about. The, the expanding, uh, the acceleration of the universe, the, expand, the uh, accelerated expansion, um, really happens much, much later. So the first supernova we can actually observe are um, hundreds of millions of years later um, than this very, very early period of, of, of near the Big Bang. Um, and the switch on of dark energy, as we call it, so the, the, the period when acceleration of the universe appears to begin, is typically around um, around five or ten billion years ago, so much, much later than this, this kind of very early Big Bang phase. So there's no contradiction between this evidence and, and, and the theory. Uh, so a final question from Philip Kink. Is it possible for a gravitational lens to allow us to see the same object at different distances and ages? The answer is yes, absolutely, and it's a really exciting observation. Um, so strong gravitational lenses can produce multiple images of the same object. We sometimes see things called Einstein quartets or Einstein rings, which are multiple pictures of the same thing. Um, and typically we're seeing multiple copies of the same background galaxy or quasar around the, sort of distributed around the same foreground cluster. The different light paths that 
go to these images or sort of rather come from these images are can be different lengths. There's no reason they should all be the same. And that means we're seeing the object at different times. The delays are different from the light to get from there to us. So we're seeing it at different times. Now this leads to a really interesting cosmological probe where we can measure the universe, which is called a time delay lens. So if we can measure the time difference between these paths and also model the power of the lens, then we can understand the geometry of the universe much, much better in the distance to this object. Now, the most spectacular example of this time delay difference happened very recently um, when a super, supernova nicknamed the Refstal supernova um, was seen going off multiple times. And the final version of that, the final explosion that we saw, actually happened in uh, November 2015 and was predicted in advance. So we saw a first collection of uh, explosions and, and then we predicted the last one happening um, many, many years later. So it was, it was, it was a, a, a fantastic validation of our model for this gravitational lens and our model and our understanding of this gravitational lensing picture. And it's really important for um, measuring the expansion history of the universe as well. Yeah, I think we talked about that on a previous Jodcast, actually, maybe oh. one of, I think it was one of my odds and ends, actually. Um, it yeah. was a really um, cool system. I think that was the one where you had, um, it was lensed by a cluster and then that one of those images was then lensed by a foreground galaxy, is that I, right? Uh, I, I don't know the details, but very possibly, yes. <laughs> um, it's also believed that the very first image of those things actually happened in 1988 with nobody watching. So we, we saw a middle group of them Mm -hmm. And then we and we saw it, and so so part of the question here, I think Philip's asking, is uh, can we sort of see the evolution of objects with a, a, these spectacular supernovae apart? You typically can't because the time delay differences tend to be too short on the kind of stellar life lifetime thing. So it's not like we can see oh here's a, here's the uh, or at least any system we've seen so far, we can't see an object and say okay here it is when it's a young galaxy, here it is when it's an old galaxy. So it's only with these really kind of spectacular evolutions that happen very quickly, like supernova, that we can really you know we can see the development happening in real time. Mm. I think one of the primary images is due to go off at some point in the future oh, as well. there's still another one to come. Yeah, That's yeah, excellent. the last one as well. So uh, I think it's also, you can use that to work out the Hubble constant, can't you? You can, yes. Um, so it's, it's a little bit uncertain. So the problem is that if you want to know the Hubble constant exactly, you have to also know the, um, the, the distribution of matter in the lens pretty exactly as well. So there's what we call a degeneracy um, in this problem, which is that um, you can get the same observational effect either by changing the mass of the lens or the distribution of the lens or by changing the Hubble constant. So there's a bit of a we, bit of a problem there in the observations. Um, but with more observations and with more modelling, we can really, really try and pin things down. Yeah. Thanks for that, Joe. That was really interesting. Thank you very much. Thanks for that, Hannah and Joe. So now we're going to move on to something that I'm going to call the live section. Jogcast Live. You may have heard that Jogcast Live is happening. And I think everyone here is going to be putting a part in that. I hope so, yes. yes. It's already in my calendar. We've got, we've, got some, we've got some great stuff planned. We've got some great guests as well. I think I'm allowed to actually say who the guests are now. So um, we have confirmed coming uh, Chris Lintop from the sky at night and i think he's our most interviewed guest on the jogcast ever actually so he'll be boosting <laughs> his record up is, is he, jane like, greaves has done an awful lot of interviews mm, i've i've done some research and i i'm willing to stake a bet that chris lintot is the highest interview person okay we will check those numbers mm. and we will yeah we will, we will be we'll checking check that for jogcast live and we'll even be... <laughs> if that's not quite right i reckon he's probably the guest who has spoken the most or has the most mm. cumulative airtime yeah. on the jodcast <laughs> and about a variety of different topics yes. as well and we will hopefully be having the jodfather himself stuart low yeah 
Um, do you, uh, I guess, were you, were any of you around? Megan must have been yeah, around because yeah. she started it with him. So. She was still doing it when, yeah. I, when I started as well. Mm. So. Stuart yeah. was gone by the time I got here. I've never met him either. So we're really cool. We've also got David Alt coming, another of the founding fathers of the Jogcast, who you may have heard a few episodes back, actually, in the Christmas pantomime, which he wrote once again. And Dr. Jane Gupta will be coming along as well. And Mark Perver, yeah. who's the only one of them that I've met. So. <laughs> Jen not like being called the Jen, uh, the Jod mother because <laughs> we should call her that <laughs> so we're going to be coming up with lots of trivia for the Jodcast episode I'm sure of who's, who's done the most interviews and that sort of thing um, but you can now apply for tickets to come and see us it's going to be on Sunday the 28th of February and it's going to be at Jodrell Bank Observatory at 2pm and um, we'll be putting up lots more uh, information about the show as we go along. But if you go to www.jogcast.net slash live, uh, you can fill in a form and apply for some tickets to come along to the show. It'd be really interesting to see if any of the listeners have been listening for 10 years. Mm. I'm not sure. Any dedicated? Yeah, I don't really know. cool. We've had, we've had messages in the past from uh, people who went to the last Jogcast Life, which was... 2010? Yeah, I think it was 2010. I think it was 2010. That when I dialed in remotely from Australia, mm. and the idea was they were going to have a screen with my head on it, or like Holly from, from Red Dwarf, you know, <laughs> with a blackout and everything, so it was just my head. But in the end, they didn't have enough TV monitors. What a shame. So. But we, what we did have was coconut halves, because we did the pantomime, because it was oh, in December, we and we did live music, yeah. uh, live sound effects. So I was sort of underneath a table. Were you a horse? Yes, yeah. <laughs> and we had a swanny whistle and all kinds of... I can't remember what the pantomime was that year, but... So that's fun. exactly why you have the coconut shell. Yes, they're office. still yeah. in my office <laughs> six years later, so... <laughs> so yeah, Jogcast Live will be great. Um, also, at the time that this goes out, we'll be slap bang in the middle of Stargazing Live, which is the annual BBC uh, celebration of all things astronomical. Um, and on the Friday episode, obviously, they'll be talking about Tim Peake because he'll be doing his spacewalk which will be really cool uh but also manchester's a bit involved this year because we're doing something to do with the citizen science project using the zooniverse chris lindot's zooniverse so in the past they've uh, done things like search for supernovas using um using people logging in from computers all over the world uh, to look at pictures and to look for gravitational lenses as well i think this year they're going to be searching for pulsars um uh, you always hear lots about pulsars on the jobcast <laughs> Um, so that'll be really interesting. I've had a look at some of the images that you're able to see if you make a Zooniverse account and do this. And they sort of look like TV static. But you're looking for a line, a straight line zooming right up the middle, uh, which shows that there's a, a pulsar there. That will be covered in Tuesday's episode of Stargazing Life, which is the 12th. Uh, and that Zooniverse project will be around for hopefully forever, as long as they can keep putting data into it. So definitely take a look one thing pulsars don't seem to be short of is data mm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and if any jogcast listeners happen to be in or around london at the at the yeah the end of the first week in february the fifth and the sixth um astrofest is on in london in kensington again this year and they have a, a rather interesting speaker lineup they have dr brian may who of course has a phd in astrophysics the brian may from queen um, oh, Tim Peake will be good to miss it then. <laughs> <laughs> um, who else is there? There is um, 
Dr. Alan Chapman, who is a historian of science, who always tells really interesting stories about somebody from the astronomical history. Uh, I believe he's talking about Robert Hooke this year. Um, there's also Matt Taylor, who's the Rosetta mission scientist. What is his official title? Is that? I think that'll yeah. do. Yeah. Um, and and there is me. I'm actually going to be giving a, a lecture as well on the same bill as, as the rest of those illustrious people, and I'm a little bit nervous. So if you happen to be in London on the 5th of, uh, 5th of February, do come down and say hello. So as a jogcaster on the same table as Brian May, I'm hoping you're going to bring along a, uh, a rec- piece of recording equipment and... I will try and snag an interview. I will take my little field recorder that I bought to do the news when I went overseas, and I will see if I can snag an interview. I did ask him very nicely ten years ago when we first started the Jogcast, because that was around the time he just finished his PhD. Oh, and what's I, that story? I did ask him. Well, so he it was around the same time that they closed the London Planetarium as well, and Brian May had a rant on his blog about this and how terrible it was and how important science was. And I sent them sent him an email through his website asking for permission to quote it, expecting to not get a response. Um, but I did. I got a response from Brian May. Saying, himself? Yeah, himself. Not, not, not his secretary, no. Um, saying, yes, absolutely, by all means, do quote it. Um, I, nearly, I nearly came to George Bank to do my PhD many years ago when he first started. Must have been loads to talk about. Yeah, well... Um, so I did ask him if he'd do an interview, um, you know, on Skype at his convenience, but he was, he was too busy. So I will... If I, if I get to meet him, I will try again. Absolutely. Maybe his schedule will have, sh- uh, will have settled in 10 years. <laughs> Maybe it's gotten oh, even I more busy. Know. He seems to be even more busy than he was these days, but we'll see. And now on to the feedback. So we've had no posts, um, and we did a tally of all the Christmas cards we got in the end, which is one, which is one more than <laughs> any other year, I think. So hopefully awesome. we'll be able to beat that in the coming years uh, with a Christmas card collection. Might be able to hang them up in the office somewhere. <laughs> um, we've had a few Facebook messages and a few emails, but they've all been about the fact that the Jogcast servers have been struggling to serve properly over the uh, uh, over the last month or so. Uh, we're working on fixing it up. Uh, they seem to be up and working properly now, but in the meantime, we do have backup episodes stored on a second server and we have links to them on facebook and on twitter and on the website so if you can't download it on itunes and you can't download it on the website then go to our front page and you'll see a link to another server and that will definitely work for downloading the episodes we've had a tweet from dr helen mason and she tweeted about an interview that she did for the jogcast in 2006 march which was 10 years ago. One of the first. That's one of yeah. the, I think that was Stuart Lowe's first interview, actually. Do you remember that episode, Megan? Uh, from 10 years ago, I can't say that I do. I do I do remember Helen Mason, though, because she has the most fantastic curly hair. Oh. So I, rem- I remember meeting Helen, but um, I don't. I can't, can't say I remember the interview. No, I'd have to go listen to the episode again. And we've had a few more questions via Twitter for Ask an Astronomer as well, but we are still running low, so it'd be great if we could grab some more of those from you by whatever means necessary. So you can find us on iTunes. Uh, please rate and review us there. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter, at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook, at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube, at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr, at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post, and the address is on the website. So I guess all that's left is to thank people. So special thanks to Professor John Seradakis and Jean-Francois Robitaille for the interviews. 
The editors were Ben Shaw and Charlie Walker. The producer was Charlie Walker. And lastly, I think we should probably thank you, the listeners, for sticking with us for, well, sticking with me for about six months, <laughs> but sticking with the Jogcast for 10 years. Yes, thank you very much. So, so we shall now go and enjoy birthday cake. Mm, which we have on the table in front of us. It smells delicious. <laughs> so until next time, Jod on! on.